to welcome you all to church this morning. <laughs> Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together. I will sing forever of your love. Come down with my hands to heaven. Shout your praises loud. I was lost in darkness when you pulled me out. I will sing forever of your love. Come
Father, we are in awe of who you are and of your grace to us.
As we have come together today, we come with thanksgiving for your blessings. And we come in worship as we bow before you to worship you, to honor you, and to hear from you. Thank you for being present with us today. Be glorified in all that we do. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. Before you're seated, share a word of greeting with others here in worship this morning. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings. Let's go. 
Father, it is an amazing thing to think about what you not only have done, but what you continue to do in our lives. As we have uh, sung and declared our words of praise and thanksgiving, acknowledgement of who you are, we also come today knowing that you, you love it when we bring to you our burdens and our concerns. It is an act of faith in you and trust in who you are. And so today, Father, we we bring to you those concerns. We pray for those among us, those connected to us who are feeling a, a sense of grief today, loss and pain that comes with the heartaches of this world in which we live. We ask that your comforting presence would be healing and and would be grace in our grief and pain. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with health issues. We pray for Tim Nichols and Bob Brown, Jane Swanson, Louise Princell, Laura Habecker, Hudson Hess, Nancy Cole and Brian Orbacher, Peter Lingenfelter, Ellis Brotsman, for Chuck Barrett. Cheryl O'Brien and Ben King, for Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, for Warren and Ella Woolsey, Mike Raybuck, Everett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth and Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, and others who are on our hearts and our minds today, and we pray for your healing power in each of their lives today. Father, we pray for our relationships that are not what we would like for them to be. We ask for your healing grace in those. We pray for the needs that we bring with us today that may be financial, they may be decisions about the future. Lord, all of the burdens of our lives we lay at your feet and ask for your gracious mercy. Father, we pray for the, the ministries of this church and we thank you for all the ways in which you help us serve one another and serve others. We pray for churches around us as well, and we pray today for the Eastern Hills Wesleyan Church in Williamsville, Pastor Pat Jones. We ask that your grace would be upon this congregation as they worship today and as they serve you throughout every day. May they sense your blessing in all that they are and all that they do. We pray for our nation in a time of turmoil, that you would bring peace and that you would help us to to, uh, sense a spirit of unity in you. We pray for all who are recovering from disasters and recent tragedies and pray that you will 
bring your peace and healing. We pray, Father, for the world beyond us. We think of refugees, people who live in places of war, and ask that you would bring peace, healing, security, grace, things that, quite frankly, we often take for granted. Father, we also pray for your work around the world. And we think of all the missionary families that are connected to us as a church and as individuals. And as this time, at this holiday season, they may feel most keenly the separation from loved ones. Maybe they have a need for extra funds to continue their work or protection as they may be traveling. And we ask, Father, that they would sense your grace in all of the needs that they face, wherever they may be. And Lord, we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters who face persecution and opposition. We pray for for those uh, who secretly distribute Bibles and other materials, particularly for, uh, for those who are in places that are most dangerous and most needy. We ask that you would work miraculously, that your word would be available to people who desperately seek it and need it. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for your grace and mercy upon us. Be glorified as we continue to open our hearts to you in worship. And we ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who leaves us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our scripture reading for this morning is selected verses from the book of Malachi. Following the scripture reading, children are dismissed for Children's Church, which meets in the Christian Education Building. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to to the desert jackals. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, How have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. 
All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please stand and join us as we sing. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and Please be seated. We expend a certain amount of uh, energy coming to worship each Sunday. 
I suspect that um, sometimes I hear this often, and it's been our experience, it was our experience when our children were younger particularly. Sunday morning seems to be the one day when nobody wants to get up and everything seems to go wrong. You know, if, if there's a day when your children spill their cereal all over themselves and you, it's Sunday morning. Uh, it's the day when the dog gets loose and everybody's out in the neighborhood trying to corral him in order so to get him in the house so you can go to church. It's the day when you, you know, you can't find shoes. And, you know, all these different things that go on. There are sacrifices that we make. There's a preparation we go through. There are things that we do to come to worship every Sunday. Sometimes as I'm standing up here, I, I, I see cars going by the road out there. And I, I sometimes wonder what people are thinking when they drive by. And if they don't have any connection to the church, wondering the questions they're asking themselves about why are all those cars in the parking lot? Why would people spend their Sunday morning going to church? Why, why would you do that kind of thing? If it's something you've always done, you probably don't think that much about it. But, but quite frankly, lots of people wonder what's in our minds that we would come every Sunday and do this. Why do the musicians spend time rehearsing? Why do teachers spend time preparing? Why do we exert the energy and the effort and all that we do in order to come to worship and all the things that we do on Sunday morning? I think it's a question that we probably need to ponder a little bit. But the thing about that is that actually there's a, there's a bigger question that I want us to think about this morning. It's not just the time, the preparation, all things we go through to come here on Sunday. But the bigger question is, with all that we do to come here on Sunday, how does what we do on Sunday here make a difference in how we live every other day out there? One of the things that I think is sometimes difficult for for people to grasp is that worship is not just what we do on Sunday. The kind of worship that God is seeking from his people is the kind of worship that infects and, and affects every part of life. To truly worship God is to live our lives thinking continually about God. And I think at the heart of what Malachi is describing is this sense that worship is about all of life. And all of life is about worship. Malachi is not only the last of the minor prophets in terms of how they appear in our scriptures, but he is also, as far as we can tell, the last prophet to speak in Israel. He, has, he's, he comes on the scene a considerable amount of time after Haggai and Zechariah. And uh, the people have sort of settled into Jerusalem. The exiles have come back. They've rebuilt the walls. They've rebuilt the city. They've done a pretty good job of rebuilding the temple. Things are in place. And now they're in probably the most unenvious place any of us could be in a waiting pattern. I mean, none of us like to wait. Sometimes we'd rather be going backwards than just waiting. But they're not, I mean, there's a certain sense you could say they're maybe digressing back a little bit, but they're certainly not moving forward. And there is this sense among the people that they're sort of on their own. God isn't really doing anything. They, they don't really see God at work in their, in their lives and in their community. And, and they're in this waiting pattern. And in this waiting pattern, they have begun to ignore God. They've begun to think of a skewed view of worship. And the reason they have a skewed view of worship, just like the reason we have a skewed view of worship, is because they have developed a small view of God. And that small view of God is affecting everything about their lives. That small view of God is causing them to see the desires of God and, and what God is asking and seeking of them, to see that and to feel that as a huge burden 
on their lives. In this first chapter, and we won't read through all of it, but in the, the, one of the things you see in, 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 the, in the Malachi, and we didn't read through all of it, we skipped a, around different places, just give you a little feel of it. But one of the things that, that one of the ways in which Malachi is, is used to speaking to this prophecy is a dialogue between God and the people. God says this, and they say, how have we done that? And God says this, and they go, how have we done that? And there's this, this question and answer period back and forth as God makes his accusations against them. And in this first chapter, he says to them, you, you think everything I'm asking of you is a burden. You, you are, you're demeaning me. You are rejecting me. And they're saying, how are we rejecting you? How are we demeaning you? And he says, well, let's just think about the, way, the sacrifices that you're bringing to the temple. It's great that you're bringing sacrifices, but look at the sacrifices you're bringing. You look over your flock and you say, all right, let's get the the crippled and the maimed and the sickliest lambs we can find. The ones we don't want anyway and we couldn't get anything out of them, let's give those to God. And you're bringing to the temple these animals that you don't even want yourself. He said, try giving those to your governor. See how, see how your governor likes that. If you start bringing your governor these maimed animals. It makes me think about, you think about the person you would lo- most love to spend a day with. Maybe it's somebody in history. Maybe it's somebody in contemporary life. Maybe it's, it's a, uh, somebody in the arts or entertainment or somebody in sports or somebody in politics or whatever you may think of. The person that comes to your mind, you think, wow, it would be such a privilege and an honor to spend a day with them. And they come to your house, they ring the doorbell, you go to the door and you welcome them in. You tell them to sit down and you say, let me get us something to eat. And you walk into your kitchen and you open up the refrigerator and you pick up a bag of, you don't even quite sure what it is. But you open it up and you go, whoa, man, that's been in there a while. And, and you think, I'll serve that because I don't want it anyway. And we'll throw that on a plate. You find some crusty, stale bread. And, uh, you know, some, maybe you get some, some pop that's been open for a couple of weeks. And you, you pour that into a glass for them, right? And, and you kind of lay it in front of them and say, here. I mean, who, nobody would do that, right? I mean, if you knew that this person, this idol you have, this person that you could, you'd love to spend a day with is coming to your house, you would go to the store and you would buy the best food you possibly could, and you would serve it on the best dishes you own. Because you, there's a certain level of honor and respect for them. And God is saying to them, to us, if you, if you would treat these people like that, shouldn't you treat me like that? And think about what we're giving to God in terms of not just, I mean, we're talking about money, we're talking about our time, our talents, our energy, our focus. Does God just get the scraps of our lives? Or does God get the best of our lives? Does God get what, what is most precious to us? Or does God get things that we really don't want that much anyway? It says something about our view of God. If we are willing, if we don't even think about it, and we give God the the scraps, the the last things that we have, the, the last of our energy and our gifts and our money, what does that say about how we view God? But this small view of God is not just about those kinds of things. It's not just that it's a burden, but it, it's about all of, of our lives. There are lots of things that Malachi could address in this short prophecy. He's a little bit unique compared to most of the other prophets. He does have a one little section where he talks about how God says he's going to, to come and he's going to, he's going to respond negatively uh, in judgment toward uh, the people who treat others with contempt. But he gives the most amount of time and energy about things like that related to our closest family connections. Primarily about marriage. 
He talks about how, uh, you know, how we are connected in marriage. And he talks about how marriage is, is a gift that he's given to us. And that it is a sign of the covenant that God has with his people. And he's upset with them because they are marrying people from other nations. Now, that is not a race thing. God is not saying, I don't want you to marry anybody of a different race or nationality. The point is that these are people who worship foreign gods. And he's saying to them, look, I obviously don't mean that much to me. If you, you, I, don't, you don't mean that, I don't mean that much to you. If you would be willing to marry people who reject me and hate me and have nothing to do with me. It's about the kind of, of relationships. Now, he's not talking about friendships. He's not talking about the fact that we shouldn't have connections to, to the world. We should. We know that from Scripture. He talks about that all the time. But in those closest, intimate, most intimate parts of our relationships with people, the sense of wanting to be on the same path with them. But he takes it the next, next other step further and he says, but let's talk about... you." The fact that you are married to other Jews, and that's a good thing, but you're treating your marriage vows with contempt. And he says, you, you, you divorce your wife, and you don't think a thing about it. Now, you've got to understand their culture. He's not saying, when God later says, you know, I hate divorce. And God is not saying by that statement that divorce is like something irreconcilable with God. But he is saying that it is a problem that he is concerned about because of all of the pain that it causes everybody involved. And in their culture, women had no right to file for divorce. Only men did. And it didn't matter how abhorrently a a husband treated his wife. The wife had virtually no rights to do anything about it. But a husband could divorce his wife for anything. If she burned his bagel in the morning, that was it, you're done. If she undercooked the lamb, that's it, you're done. If she didn't keep the house clean the way he wanted it, you're out. The the laws that the people had developed, these are not the laws that God developed, but the laws that the people developed said, a husband can divorce his wife for virtually anything, any reason No questions asked. And it created an atmosphere in which women who already had no rights had no way to earn money, no way to own property, no way to care for themselves, much less their children. You can begin to see why God says, I hate divorce. And the problem is, they believe, they have such a small view of God that they think God doesn't care about how we treat other people particularly those closest to us. But he does. And that's why he says so often, I care about the widows and the orphans and, and people in, a, in the culture and the society who have been placed in an extremely vulnerable position. I'm going to take care of them. But the issue is, you ought to be taking care of them. And you can't treat each other like that. You can't just take that. You can't act as if it doesn't make any difference. Because it does. Because here's the truth. How we treat people who are closest to us is a reflection of what we think about God. If we treat those who are closest to us with contempt if we treat them from a selfish perspective, if we are willing to to leave them to to their own devices and we don't really care that much about them, then it tells us that we don't really care that much about God and that we have a very small view of God that he doesn't care about how we treat other people. But he takes it another step and he talks about one other thing and he talks about possessions. We didn't read this passage, but in chapter 3, he says, If you want me to accept your sacrifices, you have to stop robbing me. And they look at him and say, What do you mean? How are we robbing you? And he says, I'll tell you how you're robbing me. 
I have blessed you with abundance and you're not giving any of it back to me. And you think, I don't care. And he says, bring the tithes and the offerings into the storehouse. You're withholding it. You're withholding all the things that I've given you, all of the ways I've blessed you with your possessions. And you have such a small view of me that you think it doesn't matter to me. It does. What we do with our possessions matters to God. Because again, it's a direct reflection of our thoughts about God and our relationship with God. I remember someone saying, maybe one of, one of the best indicators of, of, our, of the health of our relationship with God is to take a look at our checkbook or our credit card statement, how we spend our money. Are we, are we generous toward ourselves and not toward God? It matters. And sometimes we're, we're thinking to ourselves, okay, how can I... I think we think of, of what we bring to God, what we give to the church, what we give to other causes with God. We sort of think of that, we think of the tithe as sort of a tax. And we're thinking to ourselves like we do with our taxes, and maybe rightly so with our taxes, how do we get away with, how do we get, get to the place where we can pay as little as possible and not get in trouble with the government? We want to be legitimate. We want to do the right things. But we're trying to take every exemption we can, and we should. And I think sometimes we think of what we give to God in the same light. But it belies the fact of what we really think about God. We, have, we think, I'm going to be... I'm going to be stingy with God because, quite frankly, I think God is stingy toward me. And that's why he says, you bring the tithes into the storehouse and let me show you what blessings look like. Now, this is not some kind of quid pro quo that God is saying to them. Look, this is, a, this is not a thing of if you bring your tithe in, if, you're, if you are generous with me, I'm going to... I'm going to Overflow your life with more and more money. What he's saying is, if you're generous with me, you're going to find that I meet your needs. You're going to find that I love to bless you. If you just let me. But if, you are, if we're always hanging on to things, if we're grasping, if we're clutching what we have with tight, with tight fists, there is no place for God to give us anything. And so God says, test me, try me, and see if I'm not a bigger God than you think I am. And I think that when, when he talks about the messenger in this prophecy. And he does that in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He says the messenger is going to come. And I think the primary thing the messenger is going to do. First and foremost. Is to enlarge our vision of God. He's going to open our eyes. To the greatness of who God is. To the bigness of who God is. And one of the ways he does that. Is to show us that God is a God. Who loves to bless us. He tells the people. In chapter 2. You know, I, I want, my whole purpose for creating human beings was to bless you. To cause you to flourish and to grow and to develop and to be the, the greatest, best people you can possibly be. That's never changed. But you've got this small view of me and you're missing it. I want to fill your lives with the fullness of my blessing. Of joy and life and grace and peace. But if you live with the spirit of stinginess, you never know it. It's only when you open up that you begin to see how awesome my blessings are. Even if they're not the kind of financial blessings we may be wanting. We will see that God is good. And that he loves to bless us. 
And we also find that the messenger comes and enlarges our vision about God and and our relationships. That he wants our relationships to flourish. That he wants to give us grace in the midst of, of of our closest relationships that are not always going to be easy. There's sometimes going to be a struggle. They're going to be difficult. Husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters, they're going to be difficult. It's just human beings being human beings. But God says, I can help you. I can make those relationships flourish if you will let me. If you keep trusting me, if you keep letting me enlarge your vision, I can fill your heart with love and compassion And with the desire to to see your relationships become what I created them to be. And you will find great joy in your homes, in your churches, everywhere that you go. Because I am a God who is big and great and who loves to bless your relationships. And he says to them, how do you know that? Because I love you. I love you. The very first thing God says in this prophecy is, I have loved you. And what's their response? Really? How have you loved us? We don't see it. God's response to that, their question, is kind of an odd one. It's one of those head-scratcher things you say, okay, I don't think I understand that. Because his response is, how have I loved you? I've loved your, I love Jacob your ancestor, I hated Esau. Well, that one's hard for us because we don't think of God hating people. John Oswalt, an Old Testament scholar, says that it's important for us to understand how Semitic peoples think and how their language works. And he says, well, you know, those of us who are, who are basically Northern Europeans... Uh, our mindset of our, our words and our emotions, we tend to say less than we could say. We tend to be reticent to, to express our emotions as fully as we could, particularly with people we aren't all that close to, but even with people we are close to. But Semitic peoples tend to be the exact opposite. They tend to go overboard. They tend to say more than they mean. They tend to, to talk in bigger, more emotional terms than they actually mean. They use a lot of hyperbole. And so Jesus says to his followers, if you want to be my follower, you have to hate your mother and father and hate your brother and sister. And we know from Jesus' teachings as a whole, he doesn't mean we should hate our family. What he's trying to say is, he's trying to help us understand. He's trying to put a little shock value into what he says to say, look, if you want to be my follower, I'm first. I'm first in your life. And so there is a sense of hyperbole in what God says in order to get Israel's attention. But the other side, the other thing that he's doing here is is that it's important for us to understand that that to, in, in the in the Hebrew language and actually in all the Semitic languages, to hate means to reject and to love means to accept. And so he's saying, I have loved Israel. I've accepted Jacob as my special prized possession and Esau I've not. But it's not because God made some arbitrary decision. It's because Esau rejected God. And Jacob in all of his stumblings and all of his questions and all the the negative things and all the struggles that he had in his life, at the core of his being, he was seeking God. But Esau, Esau kept making decision after decision after decision that was a rejection of God. And really what God is saying here is not so much that he has hated Esau, but that Esau has hated God. His point that he's trying to make is that we're a special possession. We are his loved people. And as his loved people, we can trust him. And when you know you can trust him, then his desires 
even what we might call demands, no longer feel burdensome. They feel like freedom. Because we know that God is only doing what is in our best interest. We know that God only wants what is best for us and he's doing what is best for us. And sometimes it's hard to see that. Like a child not understanding a parent's discipline. But a loving parent disciplines because it's in the best interest of their child. And God is saying to us, you can trust me. Bring your best to me. Trust me by by being more and more generous than you ever thought possible with me. me. Trust me with your relationships. Because I will give you all the grace that you need to find them to be a source of joy and blessing and life and grace. And I love when you get to chapter 4 and he talks about the son of righteousness. That's a phrase that Charles Wesley uses in his great hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And he talks about the son of righteousness who comes, what, with healing on his wings. And who comes to make us like well-fed calves who roam the fields in freedom and joy and contentment. Because they trust. And this is what God is calling us to be. If we could get this larger view of God, this bigger picture of who God is and the greatness of God, we would begin to understand the joy of life, all of life is worship. And all of and worship as all of life. And it's what Tozer was saying when he said we were created to have an everlasting preoccupation with God. And that everlasting preoccupation with God changes our lives. Holy Father, we want to thank you for who you are. Your greatness your power and your love, your mercy and grace. Help us, Father, to see a bigger image of you in all of your glory. And let that image of you lead us to trust you And to love you. To believe that you are who you say you are. Through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. stand as we sing together.
receive a benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.